right, church, if you have your Bibles, open up with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 1. As you turn there, let me help you by setting up and just reminding you of our context, where we're at, um, and giving you some frame of reference there as we jump into the study. Uh, we don't know the, the precise pre- the beginning of the, the church of Ephesus. Um, we do know that Priscilla and Aquila, if you remember back through our study of Acts, were involved very early on. Um, you remember those guys? Paul dropped them off in Ephesus as he was hurried on his way to Antioch during his second missionary journey. He returned back, uh, there we go, uh, returned back to Ephesus uh, where he stayed for a two to three year ministry, preaching first in the synagogues there, if you remember, and then moving to the house or the home of, of Tyrannus, the hall of uh, Tyrannus, um, after, after they were not able to meet in the synagogues any longer. And Paul's ministry in Ephesus was filled with incredible power. God used him and the, the ministry of the word, the gospel there in an incredible way, so much so uh, that the idol makers and the idol making industry there in Ephesus suffered. If you remember, it's a very pagan city and idol worship was a huge part of that city and their pocketbooks began to be strained because of the work of the gospel there in that city and they suffered substantial loss and it eventually led to the famous Ephesian riot where the idol makers guild came together to chase Paul out of the city and um, despite that time of suffering though Ephesus became sort of the mission center or hub for the spread of the gospel to Asia Minor and now Paul is is writing and he's writing back to Timothy who's stationed there in Ephesus some five years later as we learned last year, last week as we were looking at our introduction to this book the first two verses and, uh, and he's writing to Timothy, stationed in Ephesus as he's leading the church there. And as Paul warned earlier, trouble has come to the church in Ephesus again. But this time it's not from, uh, within, it's not from with, outside the church, the idol makers guild. This time it's from within. Savage wolves, Paul calls them, have come into the sheepfold. And so Paul pens a very specific uh, set of instructions and uh, instructions specifically about church order and conduct and conduct and how the people of God, the household, he calls them, should behave um, within the household of God. And, and he's given these instructions to Timothy, and those instructions are the letters of First and Second Timothy that we're going to be studying. We observed in our introduction last week and uh, uh, in verses 1 and 2 that we, we saw who Paul was and who Timothy was, and now we're starting verse 3, and by the time we get to the third verse, right, the very beginning of this letter, Paul's no longer engaging in opening pleasantries. The greeting has come to a close, and it's all business. And so that's what we see this morning. And this conveys to us a sense of urgency, right? Paul's addressing the problem there in Ephesus with these false teachers. And so this week, the rest of chapter 1, verses 3 through 20, uh, Paul's outlining for Timothy the, the task, right? The task that he has before him at the church of Ephesus, and really the task that Paul has before him in this letter, what he's attempting to accomplish in writing to Timothy. And as we'll see this morning as we dive in, it all hinges on everything Paul is going to say revolves around the gospel. And that's a word we use a lot. We use it all the time. It's in all of our vocabulary. But this morning, I, I pray that as we gather around the word of God and specifically this text, verses 3 through 20, that's what we'd see, that everything that we're called to in this life, every, everything that we do as a church revolves around, hinges on the gospel. And so let me give you quickly the outline, three major points this morning, three sections in the rest of this chapter. The first one is this, protect the purity of the gospel, protect the purity of the gospel. Uh, second, 
passionately proclaim the power of the gospel. The third, proactively prevent perversions of the gospel. And if you can say all three of those five times fast, kudos to you. Uh, so, protect the purity of the gospel, passionately proclaim the power of the gospel, and proactively prevent perversions of the gospel. It'll be on the screens as we walk through, so if you didn't get all that, no problem. Let's look at the text. Start in verse 3. As I urged you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their mothers, their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul, Paul's first instruction here to young Timothy is essentially this. Protect the gospel, Timothy. Protect the gospel. Now that's huge considering the context, right? Everything I just told you and everything we looked at last week, we learned Ephesus is a, a city filled with paganism and rampant immorality and idolatry. It's a dark and sinful place and the activities out there in Ephesus, that, they're, they're overwhelming. And that wasn't where Paul started. That wasn't where Paul began to instruct in Timothy. No, his first concern and the thing that he starts with when he begins to give an instruction to Timothy, where he directed Timothy to start, was that which was most essential. Start with the gospel, Timothy, and protect that which is most precious. Keep people from teaching false doctrine. Keep people from perverting the truth, the, the purity of the gospel. It's super clear and it's super simple. Timothy, son in the faith that he calls him last week, Address anything and everything that pulls people away from the pure gospel, the priority of the pure gospel that's been passed to you. You say, well, why is that where Paul would start? Doesn't, doesn't Paul remember how bad it is out there in Ephesus, the, the idolatry, the, the, the pagan religion that's surrounding the church in Ephesus? Doesn't Paul remember the idolmakers guild that tried to kill him and run him out of town? Paul starts there, though, friend, because if we lose the gospel, we lose everything. We lose everything, and it, 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 it's incredibly simple here. The, the, the day and age that we live in, as we look at the world around us, we might look around and say, see all of this? Like, like see our world, see the brokenness around us, see the systems that are falling apart and the institutions that are crumbling. Shouldn't we address those things? Hear Paul say, church, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to Timothy, be first and foremost about that which is most important, church. Protect the purity of the gospel at all costs. So the logical question may be, and we're going to ask several questions of this first part, this first section of Scripture. The first logical question may be, well, Matt, if that's of first importance, if protecting the purity of the gospel is of first importance, how do we guard the gospel? Great question. 
And Paul answers it in the verses we just read. It comes down to how we use, how we employ the word of God. And in Timothy's case, he's calling it the law, the things written by God to his people, which includes for us all of the Bible, the canon of Scripture, including 1 Timothy that we're reading. And so here in these first verses, verses 3 through 11, Paul gives us examples of what that looks like. And he does it with negative examples and positive examples. In other words, Paul was going to show us how not to use God's word and how we are to use God's word. And so let's take the negative examples first because they they come first in the text. First, we don't add to the word of God. In verse 4, Paul is talking about myths and genealogies that false teachers are spreading. False teachers in Ephesus were taking names and, and, and individuals in the Old Testament and mixing with them stories and myths that were not Scripture. They were adding to the Word of God. And then we get to chapter 4, and we see even more specifically that these false teachers were adding rules, right? And specifically, don't get married, right? They were teaching that. Don't eat certain foods. Don't eat these foods. What they're doing is these false teachers are, are putting rules and regulations on God's people that God did not put on His people. They're taking the law and adding to it. They're mixing with it something that's not pure and holy from God. The second negative that he gives us, the second way that we should not use the law, is we don't trust the law to save us. We don't trust the law to do what only the gospel can do. These false teachers were teaching that by one's obedience to the law and extra-biblical laws that they would make up along the way, one could help themselves earn favor with God. If you, if you live rightly, if you perform these duties well, then you could attract the affection and attention of God. And there's this perception still today among us, church, that we go to church, we do good to our neighbor, we don't say certain words, we don't do certain things, we don't go certain places, and if we do all of that well enough, you'll find favor with God. And it flies in the face of the biblical gospel. When we try to add anything to what God has already done in his gracious work in the gospel, then we pervert the very essence of the gospel. And Paul gives us not only these two erroneous uses of the law, ways not to use the law, he also gives us the fruit of doing it that way, the fruit of using the law in a wrong way. Look at verse 6. The certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. When we leave the authority of Scripture, when we check that at the door and begin teaching our own perceptions, ideas, convictions, we end up in vain discussion, is what Paul says. That's what he calls it. When you use the Word of God to your ends, it's pointless gibberish. In other words, you're just flapping your gums to hear yourself talk. It's pointless. It's meaningless. That's the picture Paul gives us of using the Word of God so inaccurately. That's what you get. Verse 7, it's the second, second thing that happens when you use the word of God inaccurately, that those false teachers, they, they desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what, what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. It's bad enough. Here's the thing, church. It's, it's bad enough to say a dumb thing, right? And sound dumb when you say it, right? I, I said a dumb thing, a wrong thing, and I sounded really dumb. It's another whole thing. It's another level. It adds insult to injury when you say something dumb and you do it with confidence and you're wrong. Like, I know I'm right. Actually, not, right? You make a stand on that wrong thing. You say that dumb thing with incredible confidence. That's what they're doing. They're making confident assertions about things they know nothing about. That's the picture that we have when we use the word of God wrongly, when we, when we hold it up, right? 
for improper reasons or for, for, uh, for, for imposing laws upon people that God doesn't impose. Right? That's the picture that we have. That's the picture we have of doing morality for morality's sake without being born again. These, peop- these people, these false teachers were teaching, do this thing, this thing, and this thing, and they didn't know the power of God. It's pointless gibberish. They're just flapping their gums. So the next question may be, then how should we use God's word, use God's law? Well, in verse 8, when we continue in the text, we see that, that we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So what does that mean? Well, verse 9, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Now, we'll get into specifics. Paul goes and names a few things in just a moment to flesh it out and to give us some more details of what he's talking about here. But we need to see first the broad category that Paul is putting all of this under, right? The law does several things. And, and if, if you've been in the church any amount of time or any, any teaching, especially through the Old Testament and the law and what we would use it for in a new covenant relationship with Christ, the law does several things. And, and we're not going to go into these in depth this morning, but the law makes you aware of your own sin, right? And your need for a Savior, you want to know how you can know that you need Jesus? Well, just try being perfect for the day, right? For the hour, right? Try to go an hour without sinning and, and, and committing sin against a holy God. You'll see really quickly that you need a Savior. Well, that's one, one purpose of the law. The law also shows us why God is just in condemning sinners, right? It shows us this is the standard. The law is the standard, and it's the standard by which he can judge us because it is him. It is his standard. He is holy, so you look at the law and he is perfect and righteous, therefore he is our judge. So that's what the law does. But in this text, and specifically in verse 9, Paul's saying something else about the law. There's another use of the law that Paul's getting at here besides the two that I just mentioned. He says the law is for the lawless and rebellious in verse 9. So what in the world does that mean? We should think about speed limits, right? And particularly uh, speed limit signs and their purpose. Why are speed limit signs posted all along our highways? Well, they're for the lawless. They're for those that are reckless drivers on the road and they need to be restrained. They're for you because you can't take your heavy foot off the accelerator. And so you see a white sign with black letters that has a speed limit on it and it cautions you. It makes you slow down. It makes you think about how fast you're going. It's to restrain lawbreakers. In the same way, God's law here, in addition to the other two purposes I just mentioned, his law is here to help us recognize boundaries. And it's here to help us see the difference between good and evil so that we might avoid evil and sin. So in this sense, is what Paul's saying in verse 9, uh, the law is written for law breakers, law breakers to keep them from doing harm to others, to keep them from harming themselves as bad as they would if those laws didn't exist. So it's not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. And then Paul names, names some categories. Now, before we read these categories, this is certainly not meant to be an exhaustive list right? We wouldn't, you look at this list and say, well, if I'm not any of those things, I'm okay. I'm good. No, Paul's giving us a representative list of what it looks like to be a lawbreaker. Now, the really cool thing that Paul does here, if you begin to look at these particular ones that he names, is he's holding these categories up because they're violations of the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament, the law that he's pointing to here with the the church of Ephesus and the things that they're struggling with, the abuse of the law in their context. So look at real quick, and if you have your text open with me, It says those who strike father or mother. This would be a violation of the fifth commandment, right? To honor your father and mother. It says for murderers. That's clearly a violation of the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. For the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. More literally there in the Greek and maybe even in some of your translations uh, would be perverts is the, the translation there. 
And they perverted God's design for sexuality. It's a violation of the seventh commandment, which is concerned with sexual purity and the sanctity of marriage. For slave traders, violation of the eighth commandment, right? Because by their trading of human beings, they're taking away the intrinsic dignity and, and, and freedom that they have created as a human being in the image of God. You've stolen that. You've taken that from someone that God has given them that. And liar, perjurer, those are the other two words there. It's a violation of the ninth commandment, which would say that you shouldn't bear false witness. So Paul gives these and he lays these out. And here's the point that he's making. The law, when taught properly, not like these false prophets are doing, but when taught properly, these laws will restrain lawbreakers. But, right, there's the but, there's the caveat. These laws are meant to restrain. They're they're meant to be good for civilization, for humanity, for our culture. These laws, if we would uphold them, they 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 would do well for us. We would do well by them and toward one another if we would hold. But we can't. We can't. The law can't restrain sin perfectly. The law can't restrain evil perfectly. That's why Romans 7, 7, Paul would say, I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. Right? So the law shows us what's good. It shows us the standard by which we're judged by a holy God. And here in verse 9, it shows us that that there is a restraint that it offers for sin However, because of our sinful nature, because we're sinful human, human beings, the law's restraint's only temporary. We eventually give in and we'll disobey, just like you give in and we'll break that speed limit sign. We have evil hearts. And so the classic example of this, right, like to help illustrate this and, and to help us think how the law has this impact on humans, the classic example is the kid, right, that finds a coin on the ground and they immediately, instinctively pick it up and begin to play with it. And they're tossing it around and having fun with their new nickel that they just found on the ground. And dad says, hey, you can play with that, but don't put it in your mouth. And the law has been laid down. It was clear. It was understood. It was logical. The child heard it. They understood the law. And and sin was restrained. Evil was restrained for a moment. (laughs) And then daddy looks back over. And of course, where is the coin? In the mouth. Exactly where he said it shouldn't be. The law was broken. And the, the same is the case for each one of us. We hear the law. It's written upon our hearts. There's a morality that's in, in every person built into us because of us being created in the image of God. And it restrains evil, but it, it only does it temporarily and it only does it imperfectly. And this is the beautiful, pure gospel that Paul is commanding Timothy to protect. Listen, here's, here's the gospel. Because the law could not ultimately restrain sin... We needed someone to remove our sin. And Christ's perfect obedience to God's will means that he was uniquely able as the Son of God to die on the cross to pay the price for your disobedience, your law-breaking. And then he rose from the dead and by his resurrection opened up the only way for you to have eternal life, for you to have your life united with his and be counted as righteous before God. So friend, if you've never trusted Christ, if you've never experienced the joy of this gospel, call upon him today. Repent of your sins today, right? Like this is showing us human achievement can never make you right with God. It can't keep you perfect before God. However, there is one who has obeyed God's law perfectly for you in your place. And he died to give you that righteousness. Now earlier we mentioned, we mentioned two outcomes of when you use the law wrongly, right? Remember? 
pointless gibberish. You're just flapping your gums and you have no idea what you're talking about. Vain discussions, what Paul says. And confident assertions. You think you're right. You're confident you're right, but you're wrong, Paul says. You actually, you don't even understand anything you're talking about because you've not understand the gospel. You've perverted the word of God. So if he gives us those two outcomes of using the word wrongly, what about the outcomes when we use it rightly? Well, he gives us those as well. The first one's in verse 4. If you look at the text with me, Paul contrasts speculations from false teachers with the stewardship from God that is by faith. That's what Paul's saying there. In other words, the right use of the law produces a standard, a rule by which we, teachers, are held accountable. Responsibility to maintain the right use of the word, the law. That's what comes with preaching the law rightly. So in other words, practical application, boots on the ground here, everything you hear me say, you should hold up to the word of God and say, is it up to, is it abiding by the standard, the authority of God's word? Everything Michael says as he preaches from this pulpit, hold it up. Does it align with the scriptures? That's the rule. That's the authority that we have. And when we preach the word rightly, you see that standard. Everything else is like chaff that's just blown away. It's pointless. It's worthless. It may be good. It may sound good. It may even get you fired up. But if it's not in line with the scriptures, if it's not in line with our authority, let it blow away. Use of the word rightly gives us that standard. Second, though, there's another product or outcome or overflow from using the word rightly. It's in verse 6. Right preaching or use of the law produces love among those who hear. Verse 6, the aim of our charge, Paul says, is love. That if issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Church, that's our aim. Like That's my desire, church, is that we, as we gather here and do what we do on Sunday mornings, that you would leave here the people who love God and love others, love your neighbors, out of the fullness of what you've experienced in the gospel. That's not simply being nice on the outside, putting on a smile and faking it while you hate somebody in your heart. That means you're, you're genuinely transformed from the inside, that, that you have a supernatural love that overflows from a sincere faith. You've been born again, you've been bought, you've been purchased, and as you hear the right use of the law, as you hear the word preached over you, you leave this place differently, full of love toward God and neighbor. If that's not the outcome of us having gathered, then we missed it. We've missed it. And so church, let's be those that guard this precious truth. Let's be those, as Paul is cautioning Timothy here, let's protect the pure gospel. That leads us to our second point, second major observation in the text. Let's be those that passionately proclaim the power of the gospel. Passionately proclaim the power of the gospel. You ever seen someone um, that just really struggles to tell a story? Right? Like maybe they, uh, they, they get sidetracked and they get off the main point and they start telling maybe side stories. And they forget what the main point was, and, and then they're and just like, what was I even talking about? Kind of sort of thing. Or maybe they get caught in the weeds, right? Like folks like this, too, they, they get caught up in the details. And they give you 16 minutes worth of details to get to the point that they forgot the main point. Anyways, they get caught in the weeds. Well, do this carefully. Because my wife is so wonderful and beautiful and gracious and kind and perfect in every way, I feel a little bit more freedom to rag on her a little bit this morning. And I asked her permission, so. <laughs> uh, Jess sort of has this tendency sometimes. She sort of has this tab, uh, habit that, uh, that she'll, she'll, she'll hijack my story, right? Like, and it happens when we're in a group of people. She'll say, hey, babe, tell them that story about so-and-so. And, -so. and I'll, I'll, 
start to tell the story, and 10 seconds in, she thinks, I could probably tell the story better than he's telling it right now, so I'll take over here and I'll tell this story. And then Jessica sort of has this habit where she gets caught in the weeds, right? Gets caught in the details of this person's age and their, where they're from, and it has no thing to do with the, nothing to do with the, the actual story and sort of caught in the weeds. And so Jess and I have this hand signal and phrase that we use, and it's land the plane. Land the plane. It's like, hey, this story that should have been two minutes is now 32 minutes, and we got to land the plane. These folks are getting tired of hearing this story. And I do it too, so she, she gives me the land the plane sometimes as well. That's sort of what's going on here, but I want to be careful. I want you to hear me carefully. This is one of those divinely inspired, inspired by God, land the plane moments for Paul, right? Like, think about what's going on here in the context of his letter. He's just exhorted Timothy to deal with false teachers who use the word of God, the law, wrongly and distort the pure gospel. And he's pointed Timothy to the proper use of the gospel. And this has pumped him up. He's excited. He's thinking about God's word and how it reveals Christ to us. And he's thinking about all those things. And he has one of these like personal hallelujah, glory to God, come to Jesus kind of moments in the spirit. And look what it leads him to do. It leads him to erupt in his personal testimony. Right? And it's not just his testimony, though, that I want us to see this morning. Paul shares his testimony in his letters all the time. He shares his, his testimony in Acts. We see it recounted numerous times. But what I want us to see this morning is that when Paul shares his testimony here, in the letter to First Tim- in First Timothy, it should be a case study for all of us for how we should share our story, right? Like, it's clear, it's concise, it's an explanation of, of the gospel, it's a celebration of the gospel. You don't read this part of First Timothy and leave thinking, man, that Paul is an awesome dude. That dude is just awesome. I wish I could hang out with, with him. You leave reading this part of the, the, the text thinking, man, what a great God we have. What great grace has been lavished upon us. What an incredible salvation we have as a result of God's grace. That's how we passionately proclaim the gospel. And that's what Paul does. So read with me, starting verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. And with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were Uh, who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So we've read Paul's autobiography, his testimony. I want us to walk back through it and make a few observations and see what we uh, can draw out of this that that would instruct us, inform us, warm our hearts for the gospel and for the salvation that we have in Christ. Verse 12 is sort of Paul's thank you, right? Before he even gives you his background on, on, on who he was before Christ, he, he thanks God. He thanks Christ for the salvation that he has. And then verse 13 is that background. Lest we forget, we just studied through the book of Acts, so we won't spend a lot of time here, but, but Paul's a blasphemer. That's what he said. He was an enemy of the church. He literally wanted to and did round up Christians, throw them in prison, and kill them. That was, that was Paul before Christ. But verse 13... But he received mercy. That mercy 
Led to grace in the Lord that overflowed with faith and love in Christ, he says. And then verse 15, and man, what a verse verse 15 is. John Stott says, uh, the most pregnant verse in all of, all of Scripture. Maybe even one of the most powerful sentences ever written. Verse 15. Paul says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Listen, church, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Don't lose the wonder of that sentence of whom I am foremost, Paul says. So let's break this down real quick and just see the glory in that one phrase that Christ Jesus came. Three words, church. Christ Jesus came. It tells us several things. Let me just show these to you real quickly. First, that Jesus didn't just show up as a baby in Bethlehem, right? That, that wasn't it, right? He came, the text says. That means he was somewhere already, that he was somewhere before Bethlehem, that he is eternal God, co-eternal with the Father, the second person of the Trinity. For uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. There's never been a time when he didn't exist. That's what it mean that he, that means that he came. He wasn't created at that time. He wasn't born in Bethlehem as a new person. He came. He's eternal God. There's never been a time where he wasn't. This also speaks of the incarnation. It's just a big word that we use to mean that God put on flesh and he came to dwell among us. Christ Jesus came, church. Don't lose the wonder of those three words. He came because we had no hope of going to him. That's why he had to come to us. So you ask, well, maybe the next question, we're going to ask some questions of this testimony that Paul gives us. Why did Jesus come? Why did he come? If Christ Jesus came, and that's so significant, Matt, why is it important that he came? He came to live the life we couldn't. He came to die the death we deserved. He came to rise in victory over death and sin, our greatest enemy, because we couldn't defeat them. And this is the greatest wonder in all of history and all of mankind. It's true. It's true. Note the contrast here. It's not like the myths and speculations from the false teachers in verse 4. Paul says, no, verse 15, this is worthy of, of full acceptance. It's trustworthy. It deserves to be fully accepted that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. What else do we learn from this testimony? We see that Jesus came, and we see what that means. It means he's eternal. It means he's uh, been, been born in the flesh to, to come to us because we couldn't go to him. Reason, purpose, to save sinners. Next question, but what sinners? Which sinners? Verse 16 shows us all sinners who would repent and give their lives to Christ. This is what he says in verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, the foremost sinner that is, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. All of those who would believe. That's the connection Paul's saying. He's identifying himself as the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners. He'll say somewhere else. And in saying that, he's saying that if Christ, if this good news of the gospel is mercy for me, then it can be mercy for anyone who would believe. Why? Because of God's grace. That's what all this is hinging on, this gospel truth, this unperverted, pure, prioritized gospel is a picture of grace. Well, what is this grace like? We'll continue in the text. It's unconditional. Verse 13 Shows us that there is nothing in Paul. That's what he acknowledges. There's nothing in Paul that would warrant God being drawn to him or warrant him being drawn to God. There's nothing in Paul, right? He, in fact, says, I'm the foremost sinner. I was a, a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church. God's salvation of Paul originated in God's grace alone. God was the first mover. The same is true for you and I, church. 
We're not, based, we're not saved based on any condition in us, based on any merit in us. We're saved only on account of the grace of God, the grace that he has. The only thing we bring to the table of our salvation is the sin that we need saving from. We also see that his grace is intentional. Look at verse 14. This grace is intentional. It produces something. There's an end. There's an outworking of this grace. It works out. It has an end result. And those things are faith and love. Again, that we've already, that we've already seen. Faith and love. And this grace finally leads to a response in us. This, this grace leads to a response in us. And this is where I just really love Paul. And I really love Paul's Holy Spirit rabbit chasing here. Paul gets through his testimony and he describes what he was like before Christ and having met Christ the work of grace in his life that God has saved him and he's just about to explode he can't keep it inside of him he can't take it anymore John Calvin actually says his enthusiasm here breaks out into exclamation since he has no words left to express his gratitude and so verse 17 that's exactly what he does to the king of ages immortal invisible to the only God be honor and glory forever and ever amen and I have to imagine that he's shouting as he's pinning that line, right? Like the grace of God that Paul has just described demands our response. It demands our worship. And that's, a, that's what Paul does, right? Like right there in the middle of sharing his testimony, which is right there in the middle of him giving instruction to Timothy about false teachers, Paul can't help to uh, burst out into praise and he bursts out into a hymn here describing the greatness of God. Because his heart can't contain it anymore and he has to just put it on page. We could have the four, the four awesome things that he says of God here quickly. He says, king of ages, that God is the king of every age. He sovereignly governs every age from creation to after, after creation, the final age and through eternity. He's the king of all ages. He's immortal, meaning God's not subject to decay or destruction. And in the most absolute sense, he's imperishable, he's incorruptible, he's immortal. He's invisible meaning that the physical eye cannot see him. He, he dwells in inapproachable light, which no one has ever seen. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. All the human beings have ever seen of him, other than the incarnate Christ, are glimpses of his glory. He's the only God, Paul says. He alone is who he is. Uh, Isaiah 45, 18, I am the Lord and there is no other. That's what Isaiah says. These are the ways that Paul's describing the greatness of our God. He just breaks out into praise and he can't help but worship as he thinks about his salvation. Man, what we could learn from, from Paul here, church. Like, just practically, right? Like, this is not just heady theological stuff that we tuck away back in the back of our brain. As we think about our salvation, as we think about the grace that's been lavished upon us, it should compel our hearts to worship, right? Like, you want to know how to fight for joy in the day and age that we live in, in the culture that we're in, and the, the, the way that our, our culture is trending? You want to know how to fight for joy in the midst of that? Reflect on the gospel, Rehearse the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Remind yourself of Christ's death in your place and the grace that's been lavished on you in Christ. It helps. It can't help but to produce worship in us because it demands a response from us. And so, look, real quickly, protect the pure gospel. Protect the pure gospel, Timothy. And then second, passionately proclaim the powerful gospel as we see Paul doing here with his testimony. And then third, and it's our final section, proactively prevent perversions of the gospel actively prevent perversion of the gospel. So if you're following this morning, he's charging young Timothy in this difficult, difficult place to do ministry in Ephesus to protect the purity of the gospel with false teachers, wolves that are, are seeking to lead the church astray. 
And then he's, he's giving us a, a picture. He's giving us a, a case study for how we should proclaim the gospel, rehearsing how he's done a work in our lives by telling his own story. And now, before he moves on to his next item of agenda, he gives Timothy one final exhortation here in this chapter, in these last three verses. Read it with me in verse 18. It says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, or in some translations, fight the good fight, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's what Paul's saying, engage in the battle, Timothy. Engage in the battle, Timothy. And you say, well, what battle, Paul? There's all sorts of battles that we can get into, Paul. Don't you remember how Ephesus is, right? And we can say the same thing of our day and age, Paul. Like, which battles, which ones do we, do we, do we, do we pick to fight? The political, political battles, the social issues, the humanitarian concerns, the natural disasters. We've seen all of those this week, Paul. Like, which ones do we pick? All of those are important. Hear Paul say in 2 Timothy chapter 2, right? Like, we'll get to 2 Timothy next year. Paul says, share in the suffering of a good soldier, of Christ Jesus. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Timothy, remember who enlisted you. Pablo Spring, remember who enlisted you. So, so yeah, all of those things are important and they have their place and you should be concerned with those things as a, as a civilian, as a, as, a, as a citizen of this world. But those are civilian affairs, Timothy. Be of what's First, be of that thing that's of first importance, Timothy. Don't leave your first love, Poplar Spring. Fight the good fight. And so what is that? What is that fight? Well, Paul contrasts it with what it's not, right? He does that by bringing up Hymenaeus and Alexander. We know that they're false teachers by what Paul has said here. They're false teachers in the church that are, that are trying to, to pervert or distract from the true gospel, intentionally or not. Many scholars think that these guys were at one time elders in the church at Ephesus. Perhaps that's why Paul uses their names and he's so familiar with them because he spent life with them, maybe even led them to the Lord and then led them to be elders at this church at Ephesus. We're not sure. Scripture doesn't tell us that for sure. It's possible. But if it's the case, it's certainly a, a warning, myself included, that there is no one who's immune to wandering from the gospel Right? Like no deacon, no elder, no lead pastor, no small group leader, no Sunday school teacher is, is exempt from this biblical warning. So what's the warning? Fight the good fight. Wage the good war, Timothy. The good warfare. What is that? What is that? Well, we just spent uh, 15 verses walking us through what that is. It's a battle for the gospel. It's a battle for the purity and priority of the gospel. Not every hill is a hill to die on, but this is one, Timothy. We go to blows, literally, metaphorically, and in every way for the purity and the priority of the gospel. Someone asked me the other day, it pointed out to me, maybe rather would be a better way to say it, that, that Matt, you don't seem to get too worked up over the stuff that's going on in our culture and around our nation right now. And, and here's the thing, friends, I, I don't want to sound apathetic. And I don't want the, even my illustration here to, to make you think that I don't care about those things and I'm indifferent to them and they're unimportant. But here's the thing, church. I'm a realist. And when I see lost people behaving a certain way, it doesn't shock me. I'm not inflamed because lost people are doing lost people things. 
I told this person, you want to see me get fired up? Put some preacher, quote unquote preacher on the TV, peddling some false gospel to a broken world and people that need truth, selling some cheap imitation of the greatest gift in all the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That'll get me fired up. People's eternal souls are at stake. We don't peddle a false gospel. We don't water down the truth of who Christ is and what he came to do. We wage that war. That's the battle we fight. That's the good fight that Paul is, is encouraging, prodding Timothy to be faithful to engaging in. So real quickly, what does that look like? I'm going to give us a couple things right here as we close. Real practical application. What does that look like as we wage that war? Like single-mindedly, narrowly focused on that, the priority and purity of the gospel. Well, there's two ways, at least two ways that, that I want to bring this to our attention. We wage this war for the gospel in our own lives, in our own lives. And so you're at war, church. Here's the thing. You're, you're at war in your life, in your thoughts, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your families, at your workplace, with your kids. You are in a war, right? Ephesians 6, 12 teaches us that you're in a spiritual battle. It's raging around you at all times. So the question is, are you fighting for the purity of the gospel and the priority of the gospel. I don't want to separate those things. Like we can believe the purity of the gospel and still have it somewhere way down on the list of priorities. Are you fighting for the purity and priority of the gospel in your life, in your thoughts, in your marriage, in your families? And say, well, well I don't know. How to, what does that look like? Well, I read an article this week. Let me read you a quote from this article. It said, the church is increasingly just one voice among many speaking into the Christian's life. A church's worship habits may occupy two hours of the Christian's week if they go to worship and some sort of small group gathering. But podcasts, radio shows, cable news, social media, streaming entertainment, and other forms of media account for upwards of 90 hours of the Christian's week. And that number is only increasing as a result of the current pandemic. Listen to this last statement. The search bar in your internet browser is the spiritual battleground of our day. So, so let, me, let me just ask you, ask yourself, ask the Lord to search your heart, not the person sitting around you or the person in this room or not in this room this morning. Are you being shaped more by Christ and his word and the relationships you have with his people or by those other voices, right? Like this is convicting for me, church. Like what am I hearing throughout my day? What am I listening to? Is it being fueled by the word of God, the gospel, <laughs> gospel-centered preaching, the, 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 the fellowship and accountability that I have with other believers, or is it other voices? And here's the thing, church, those other voices may not be explicitly evil. They may not be explicitly evil, they're just not of first importance. And they're distracting you from that which is of first importance. This is how you wage war for the gospel in your own life. What are those things? What are those things that are weighing in on your heart and mind? There are thousands and thousands of ways we could apply this this morning. I pray that the Spirit is doing that in your own heart, and you do that as a growth group or in D groups this week. We've got to move on. The second way we wage war for the gospel, we battle for the, the gospel, is in our church. And this is the context that Paul's giving us here in 1 Timothy 1. And here's the thing. Paul specifically brings up Hymenaeus and Alexander because he's emphasizing a point about how the church does this, how the church functions and, and carries this out. Verse 19, look at it. It says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. I'm calling them by name, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to, to blaspheme. This is certainly an example here of what Jesus commands in Matthew 18. We call it church discipline. It's also been called excommunication. We see it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
And these two men were cast out, right? Cast out of the church because they're separated from Christ. Now, I want to be careful. It's not that the church makes them separated from Christ. The church doesn't have that power, no more than the church has the power to unite you with Christ. That's something, that's a work that God does in your heart. What's going on here and in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 is that the church is saying to its members and to the world around it, these two individuals are living as if they don't belong to Christ because by their teaching and their lives, they're evidencing they never knew him. In other words, you're not behaving, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, in a manner that's consistent with one who's in the household of God. And we're still commanded to do this in the church today, church. Not many churches do, and it's certainly uncomfortable, and we don't want to do it. We never want to do this, and when we do do it, we do it with broken hearts, heavy hearts. But we do it because we're commanded to. We're going through this right now, church, and we discussed this a couple weeks ago, and we're not going to go into all those details right now, but there's a lady in our church who by her own admission says, I know I'm living in sin, but I'm unwilling to repent of it. And so we look at the text and we go, please, we beg, please turn to Christ. Be reconciled to Christ. And there's no reconciliation. And so we come to the text like this. We come to 1 Corinthians 5 or Matthew 18. And we walk through a situation like this to say, well, then what you're doing is by saying that and by continuing to live in that sin, you're, you're saying that you're not among us. It's not, it's not we're kicking you out and giving you the boot. It's that you're saying you're not among us. You don't belong to the household of God because of your unwillingness to repent and yield to Christ, which is what it means to be born again. And so this is hard, church, and, and, I, and I ask you to continue to pray for, for this individual and for our church family as we walk through this. And the point that Paul's making to Timothy to, to wrap this all up is that, Timothy, as the church, as the body of Christ, when you are corporately together as the bride of Christ, right, that he's going to present to himself spotless and pure on that final day, we fight together for the purity and priority of the gospel. And sometimes, Timothy, that means doing incredibly hard things. That means doing things that you would never want to do, that may seem even uncharitable and unkind. But it's worth it for the purity of the gospel and the priority of the gospel at work among you. It's the only thing that holds us together. It's the only thing worth celebrating eternally. And so church, let's be a people that protect the purity of the gospel. Let's be a people who passionately proclaim the power of the gospel that, that has worked in each of our lives as those that have been born again. And let's proactively prevent versions of the gospel in our own hearts, Perversions that would lead us away from the priority of the gospel in our own hearts and among us as the body of Christ, as the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and that it's true and that it's unchanging and that it cuts and divides and it convicts. And God, I pray that for each person in this room. And God, if they, if they know you and their priorities have not been on the gospel and they've been being swayed by and, and, and moved by voices other than your word and the authority of scripture, that God, you would convict of that this morning. That God, you would give us a passion for the, the salvation that we've experienced in Christ to, to, to communicate that to a lost world that desperately needs it at this time. And God, if there's one here that doesn't know you, they've never experienced the pure unadulterated joy of having sins removed, God, I pray today would be the day for that person that they would come to the cross of Christ and lay sins, lay their lives down and repent and believe the good news and be eternally changed. 
We thank you for the, the grace that's been lavished upon us. God, help us to be your people. Help us to protect this pure gospel that you've, that you've communicated to us through your word. And God, as we move into a time now where we get to observe communion, God, I pray that it would be another uh, opportunity for us to be knit together as the body of Christ. You've given us this physical thing that we get to do, that we have the joy and privilege of doing, so that we can see the gospel at work among us as a people, as a congregation. So God, we give you this time as we continue in worship, and we pray that you would use it for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.